This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors series. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Did you know that in 2018, the U.S. federal government invested about $42 billion in research and development activities at research universities across the country? However, a large and growing portion of these funds are spent on activities not related to research itself. What can be done to reduce administrative burden in the federal research grants process to universities? How can the regulatory burden be reduced and efficient practices promoted? And how does the CARE Act in response to the recent pandemic impact federal grant making? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Lisa Mosley and David Noe, co-authors with Jeremy Forsberg of the IBM Center Report, Reducing Administrative Burden in Federal Research Grants to Universities. Lisa and David, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. We're glad to be here. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you for having us. Lisa and David, the federal government and American universities have a long-standing partnership in research and development. I was wondering, could you provide us with an overview of the U.S. federal research enterprise? Sure. So uh, I would say that the you know the federal government is a long-standing partner uh, for research and development activities with universities, and uh, that relationship became began to grow significantly after World War II, and it has only continued to grow, even though in some years there has been a flat um, budget line for research funding uh, and sometimes a decline, but overall they've been a really strong partner. Uh, there's 26 grant-making agencies. NIH is the biggest, uh, but smaller agencies such as the National Endowment for Humanities uh, also provide funding for different types of research. And that partnership is really, um, I mean, it is for the public good, I would go on to say. Uh, And it's a cost-effective model in that uh, universities, most of us have a mission of doing, you know, teaching and research. Uh, So it's part of our mission. And the federal government does not have to maintain independently, you know, the um, facilities to perform that research. What are some of the key challenges facing the research enterprise, and how have many of these challenges come about? What are the impacts these issues are having on research? So I think with um, some of the key challenges is often uh, you will see an increased number of regulations from the federal government, either as a whole or an agency independently making some changes that universities are then, you know, we have to comply with those. And a lot of times those regulations are unfunded, meaning we don't get additional resources to be compliant. Uh, I think the intended purpose, you know, is increased transparency and improved management of funds, you know, because we are, 
you know, their taxpayer dollars. And so, of course, we need to be accountable for those. But the agencies often implement them inconsistently, and they can have an unintended consequence of increasing the administrative and financial compliance requirements versus, you know, really facilitating the best science or scholarly activities possible. It can be like death by a thousand paper cuts. Why are federal regulatory requirements increasing? Is this a function of federal grant-making agencies having separate missions governed by different statutes and their own policies and processes? Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, those the agencies certainly need their own autonomy. We don't want them, you know, they do have different missions and they're governed by different statutes. And we recognize that there's not a one-size-fits-all But I think, you know, having a little bit more of a coordination and thinking about those unintended consequences on their university partners when they're putting this together, you know, is a critical piece. You know, I could use the PHS uh, conflict of interest policy, you know, as a pretty good example. Um, And so that came out in 2012, I believe. And it was just across the board to all investigators to make sure that there wasn't, you know, that they were disclosing any of their conflict of interest. But really, it grew out of having, you know, medical doctors who may have a significant financial conflict with pharmaceutical companies in clinical trials, right? But it is applied across the board, no matter if you're doing a clinical trial or not. It sounds good, right? It's intended to provide additional transparency and it's needed, but sometimes the implementation is where it goes awry. Yeah, and I was just going to add too that this is the part where a lot of times for our, our research work, uh, Jeremy, Lisa, and I, um, it's not that we don't want rules. Rules are needed. Um, we definitely understand that accountability um, and use of taxpayer dollars is, is important and you want to make sure that the research is is not compromised and it remains objective. But I think sometimes when these rules kind of get put in place and these administrators um, levy the rules, they forget about the intent. And so the original intent was, and if we go to reform being, you know, going back to the original form of what things should have been, it's that the researchers are focusing on the academic benefits that are beyond new tools and platforms and their performance and their outcomes provide new models for education. And these models are more effective and equitable um, and provide access to learning experiences that are global, engaged, and lifelong. And so re- researchers, they're coming at it from the angle of innovation. And that's not just a skill set, but that's a mindset. And those researchers are already successful in creating pockets of innovation in their local areas. And they draw on intellectual capacity, commitment to discovery for the public good, support for the public and our friends, <laughs> and then also creating and advancing knowledge so that we can teach, so that we can learn. Those researchers are driving the cadence of human progress, and those researchers are giving students skills and abilities so that they can apply their craft and research broadly defined. And so sometimes when these rules come into place, it becomes what purpose is that rule and what did it achieve other than to obstruct me from delivering all those things that I just talked about. So that's the researcher perspective. And often that's not at the table when the rules are being put together. Lisa and David, your report notes that the total cost to conduct federal research is increasing. How do you assess that increased cost as being borne by the universities? I would say yes. Uh, the National Science Foundation herd survey is where we got that data from. And so that is where you institutions complete the survey. And so they are capturing you know, how much federal dollars they're receiving for research and then how much of their own funds they're putting into research. And so when you look at that, the 
survey data, you can see the increase uh, of institutional costs increasing. Um, how they are being borne by the universities, I would say it, it varies widely by institution. Um, you know, some could be diverting resources from programming or hiring, investing in infrastructure or systems. Um, I think you'd get a different answer from every institution that you would ask. I'd add to just that the within the university community, it, it is a struggle. Uh, first and foremost, with the researchers, um, you know, there's a stat that 43% uh, of their time is being spent on administrative activities, which to me, when I hear that, makes me think almost half of the funds are not going to the actual research and performing the research itself, um, but it's going to other things, administrative burden. Um, and I'm not saying that it should be 0% burden for administrative work, but it should be less than, you know, 43%. So some, the number should be around 20 is what um, some people suggest. And so and you really start thinking about some of these paperwork items that the researchers have to do. And, you know, is it just checking a checkbox um, or is it actually meaningful? Um, is it five steps instead of one step? Um, so things of that that kind of come, come into place. And effort reporting is an example of that. Um, where you're chasing precision and precision is not required and timekeeping is not required and uh, activity tracking is not required <laughs> and <laughs> faculty members and researchers aren't hourly employees. And so th there's just a lot of those sorts of things that come into place where you're sort of saying, I as a researcher am spending a lot of time on this. And then there's administrators in the department, there's administrators in the central office, um, there's administrators at the sponsors, there's auditors. So all of this, this web of network is really kind of built around not focusing on the performance and the research outcomes. As you pointed out, and it's highlighted in your report, Lisa and David, the investment of taxpayer dollars in research demands oversight and accountability for its use and performance outcomes um, to demonstrate a return on investment. How do oversight and accountability approaches contribute to increased administrative burden? Are increasing regulatory requirements diverting resources from research? Yeah, so I, I would say that they do contribute. The oversight and accountability approaches certainly can contribute. I think some of it depends on the regulation that's coming from the federal government and then how institutions are actually implementing or trying to achieve compliance with that. David mentioned the 43% on the last three faculty workload surveys that were done by the Federal Demonstration Partnership, and those were conducted in 2005, 2012, and 2018, have showed that approximately in 2005 and 2012, it was about 42% of a faculty's research time was spent on administrative tasks, and it varies. You know, it's not just you know, filling out paperwork, it's related to, um, you know, if they're using animals in their research or human subjects, things that absolutely need to have rules and regulations around it. Um, and the 2018 survey showed almost a 2% increase. So it is going up. Uh, and I will echo, David, what he said earlier. It's not that there should be zero administrative, you know, burden or work on the faculty, but you know, I think most people would agree that 44% is way too high. And I think you just note that for every regulation and rule that comes out, universities all huddle and get together and try to figure out what operations to devise. And that's policies, process, people. Um, in, many, in many cases, there's systems, too, that get put in place. And so these are all uh, expensive. <laughs> and, um, you know, effort reporting itself, you sort of look at that and, the industries that we're 
have now been established um, for electronic systems and implementing of those electronic systems, then each university has their own instance. That's pretty expensive. What is the life cycle of a federal research grant? I'll explore this question and so much more when the Business of Government Hour returns. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guests today are Lisa Mosley and David No, co-authors with Jeremy Forsberg of the IBM Center Report, Reducing Administrative Burden in Federal Research Grants to Universities. Lisa and David, would you elaborate on the objective and scope of your report for the IBM Center? Perhaps you could outline the methodology you employed in researching and crafting this report. Sure. So the methodology that we primarily used. So all the data that is uh, included in the report is from publicly available um, reports that were already out there. So we just, uh, I mentioned the FTP faculty workload survey. Uh, The National Science Board issued a report in 2014 and the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine issued a report was in 2016. The NSF heard survey on research expenditures. There have been two government accountability office reports. Uh, And there has just been a lot of outcry from the university community, I think, for the last several years on, you know, the administrative burden is really kind of taking away from the focus of doing the research. Like the focus is in the wrong place. We're more focused on paperwork and compliance activities than we are on facilitating the research as a whole and the research enterprise. And then, you know, we have each of us collectively probably have, you know, more than 25 years of experience in the field. So we drew on our own personal experiences as well. And we really wanted to, like, bring it all together and say, okay, of these, you know, all of this mountain of information, you know, everybody's kind of saying the same thing. And we really tried to bring it together and be very focused on these are the reoccurring themes and here are some recommendations to, you know, let's try to solve the problem instead of I have a very uh, close colleague who says, you know, we sometimes we do a great job of admiring the problem, right? But like, how do you actually solve the problem? We were, we were all practitioners. Uh, Jeremy, Lisa and I were practitioners before we were students. And then we started teaching faculty workshops for various professional organizations that we're part of to teach other research administrators on how to interpret things and how to do things in the least intrusive minimal burden pathway. Um, And so that really kind of uh, 
was a little bit of our methodology as well. And then also just reviewing the audit reports. Um, and so Jeremy spent a lot of time going through um, audit reports and collecting data and seeing what the initial, uh, you know, report said in terms of potential costs that were unallowable and then following those all the way through the audit resolution and seeing that in many cases, especially for the NSF two month issue, that none of those costs were sustained <laughs> in terms of audit resolution and they're all deemed to be allowable. But as universities, we see the initial headline of saying, here's an audit finding, here's a school that has disallowed costs. And we don't follow through and see the, the outcome of that being nothing. And in some cases, universities then start making changes and start adapting their operations to fit these um, audit interpretations. And then that's the last part I would say to you is that we've spent years working with auditors and um, going through audits ourselves for our universities and um, just that process of, you know, ambiguity and lack of clear, concise guidance and, you know, interpretation and that policy interpretation can be very conservative or, you know, almost to the point where it's uh, unrecognizable that no university could comply based on that interpretation. And it either has risk tolerance or a risk aversion or change tolerance or change aversion. Um, so those are some of the things that we've seen in terms of our, our actual day-to-day -day work. To fully understand the amount of work that goes into managing a grant, it is important to understand the various stages of the life cycle of a research project. Would you provide us a brief overview of each of these stages and some of the steps that are under each phase? Sure. So uh, the first phase um, is proposal preparation and submission uh, to the federal agencies. And in this phase, it's really um, so the idea, like the faculty member will, you know, have this idea that they would like to explore further. And it's matching that idea with the funding opportunity uh, from the federal agency. And then it's going through that individual federal agency requirements for proposal submission. Um, and it can vary by agency. And then it's submitted for review. And then the turnaround, the decision cycle will go through peer review is usually after submission. It could be six to nine months on average before a funding decision has been made. Uh, the award phase, I would say, is probably the shortest phase in the life cycle. And so that is when um, the award is issued, you know, if there's any revisions needed at that time. Um, you know, if there is a budget reduction or a scope of work change, um, any information that they need to move forward with issuing the award notice is the award phase. The post-award phase is the longest normally and the most complex. And so in this phase, it's where the actual research is occurring. Um, there's financial reporting, progress, or technical reporting along the way. And then if there are any changes in the research that's happening, um, you really need to understand the rules in this and do we need agency prior approval? Are we authorized to make the change without agency prior approval? You know, making sure that we have all the documentation that supports the decisions that we've made along the way. Uh, and then the final phase is the closeout phase. And so that is after the project has ended and that is doing all the final reporting, final technical reporting, final financial reporting, making sure that we are ticking and tying everything and closing it out. David and uh, Lisa, I realize your report was published prior to the recent national emergency, uh, but um, you know, how has the recent passage of the CARES Act in response to the pandemic impacted the grants life cycle? 
So I would say um, that OMB and the federal agencies, too, have issued guidance. Um, one, I would say that they've done a really good job uh, understanding that, you know, it is a crisis and that they know that things have sort of slowed down at a lot of universities. And so they have issued guidance granting some flexibilities during this crisis, so um, extension of proposal deadlines. They've provided, you know, quick turnaround if there's a research project that's COVID-related. Um, they have sort of fast-tracked that proposal submission, evaluation, and award process. Um, they are allowing salaries to continue to be charged to a project, even recognizing that work may not be happening full steam ahead, as long as it is consistent with university policy. So I think that they have done, you know, again, a really good job of being flexible and nimble. So Lisa and David, uh, the, over the years, uh, efforts have been made by many stakeholders to streamline, harmonize, and reduce burden for agencies and grants recipients. How does the U.S. Office of Management and Budget's uniform guidance factor into contributing to this? And what does it seek to do? And maybe perhaps you can give us an overview of its implementation thus far. So prior to 2014, there were actually eight circulars um, that governed grants management in all the different phases of the grant life cycle. Uh, and they applied to different grant recipients. So there would be you know, one for hospitals, one for institutes of higher ed and other nonprofits, one for state and tribal community. And so, you know, sometimes there would be you know, conflicting statements like A133 had the administrative requirements and did a statement in that somewhat conflict with A21, which were the cost principles and, you know, which one was right. And so, I mean, there was quite a bit of confusion. And so they put out uh, advance notice for uh, rulemaking. Everyone, you know, submitted thousands and thousands of comments of, you know, how we could make grants management better. Uh, and then, you know, they came out with their response of, we're going to combine them all into one circular. And I think at the time, no one was really very excited about that. Because I will say research grants are not the same as, you know, a community grant or a block grant to a state. A research grant is in and of itself sort of a different animal. And so I think there was some you know, anxiety in our community of how it was going to work. But I would say overall, you know, we are six years later, I think it's been pretty successful. And I will say the other thing that was really good was they have to review it every five years to make sure that it's still current uh, and keeping up with the changing times. Yeah, and I think just really to echo Lisa's uh, comments, it's been great for individuals like um, us administ as administrators who like to have the gray area and that not not to have the regulations prescribed in exactly what you know what are the options so in effort reporting in um, a twenty one there were some examples that were put in there. Um, those were not the only methods to comply, but since those were examples within the regulations, they became the the method that universities used uh, because they wanted to know something that was safe. So I, I appreciate, in terms of my perspective, I appreciate the uniform guidance in the preamble, starting off there saying that the reform objective is to reduce both administrative burden and risk of waste, fraud, and abuse, um, and that there's a focus on performance over compliance accountability, um, and that in the regulations in uniform guidance 200.430, 
there's actually a, even a statement that says it allows for alternatives to current requirements that provide even higher standard of accountability without burdensome process requirements. And so those were an opportunity and an expectation to me to push the dial to have more administrative burden reduction, but also to still comply. Um, and so finding ways to do, as we mentioned, alternatives to effort reporting um, is one example, but you know, also you know, conflict of interest, progress reports, financial reports, how to do those in minimal burden ways, as opposed to doing check, check, double check at every stage. <laughs> and it sort of becomes overkill for the researcher if they're being checked up on every week. Um, you can imagine in your own personal life, if you had somebody checking in with you every week to ensure that you did your work. <laughs> and so um, that would be kind of uh, attack on your integrity. But perhaps once a month or once every quarter, that might not be so bad. As part of its broader management reform agenda, OMB is currently pursuing three initiatives to reduce administrative burden in the broader grants arena, not just research grants. What can you tell us about these initiatives? Sure. So I would say um, for the CAP goals, which is the cross-agency performance goals. Um, goal number six is shifting from low value to high value work. Um, and so that is sort of a focus on instead of, you know, to, you know, sort of the comment that David made of, you know, are you checking the box? Why are you checking the box? And does that box still need to be checked versus are you focusing on where the risk really is? Um, I think can have a huge impact on the grants, you know, how we do grants management. Uh, and the second one that is um, goal number eight, which is results-oriented account accountability for grants. Um, and this one is really more internal, I think, to the federal government where they have spent a significant amount of time of standardizing data elements and making sure that something as simple as award number, you know, does NIH, NSF, you know, Department of Defense, does everyone agree that award number actually means this data element? Um, because as the recipients of those awards, when we're reporting on them, making sure that, you know, okay, if you're reporting to NIH, award number means this, but you have to remember if you're doing a DOE report, you know, Department of Energy report, that award number may mean something else. So standardizing those data elements and creating an infrastructure that's more centralized, an IT infrastructure that's more centralized across the agencies would be uh, a huge win. Uh, and the last one I think is really just, you know, the uniform guidance revisions, like the ongoing updating and making sure that they are taking advantage of, you know, being able to streamline and making sure that they are allowing us to focus on where the risk is versus re because it's, you know, a policy that we have to continue to do something that doesn't make sense anymore. In addition to OMB, there are a number of other federal stakeholders who have undertaken efforts to address administrative burden in research grants to universities. What can you tell us about these efforts? So um, the Coordinating Administrative Requirements for Research Group, which was formerly known as the Research Business Models Working Group. So this is a cross-agency committee that has done a lot of really good work uh, in the administrative 
reducing administrative burden and sort of standardization. And two of their big wins, I would say, for the grant recipient community that we tried to highlight in the report is having a prior approval matrix used to be known as expanded authorities across the agency. So as an example, we used to, I mean, this was years and years ago, you know, if you had a deviation in your budget, you would have to get prior approval from the agencies. Well, the standard terms and conditions allow several agencies have waived that prior approval requirement. So institutions can make those decisions on, you know, our own. Uh, and then the progress the research performance and progress report. So this is used for technical reporting at interim phases during the project as well as at the final stage. Uh, and each agency used to have a slightly different format, but uh, this committee was responsible for standardizing that across all the agencies. So they have been huge. Agency examples, you know, NIH uses modular budgets. NSF uses some variation of pre-proposals for certain of their programs. David, can you think of any other examples? It feels like even though there is a push to standardize, um, that when you are handling awards at a university, it's, it's very hard to standardize. And you almost have to customize your support for every single award as it comes in. Um, because some will require a financial report on the last day of, of the award, and some will require the financial report to be done 30 days after the award, or 90 or 120. Um, so it's very hard to then, as, as you're an administrator um, working with your researcher, to then build out a timeline for them <laughs> in terms of knowing when to do things, um, let alone knowing what to do in those, in those reports. Oh, I will also add, sorry, uh, the Federal Demonstration Partnership uh, is another uh, entity, like that is their sole purpose, and that has federal representation, university representation, and they also include faculty, and so their entire purpose is to partner together to figure out, you know, are there projects where we could demonstrate a pilot of how to do business better together while reducing burden. On that uh, FDP uh, faculty workload survey from 2005 and 2012 that Lisa mentioned earlier, 42% of PIs are spending their time on administrative tasks. That was really one of the things that caught our attention, uh, Jeremy and Lisa and I, as we started working on a lot of our research projects and um, just really thinking it too, and in that report, it talked about 82% uh, of the respondents, faculty respondents, recognized the effort reporting um, as taking time away from their research, and 50% identified as taking a substantial amount of their time, um, and that in the end, they were unsure what it even proved, <laughs> because the progress report and the financial report were being submitted to say, uh, you got what you paid for, you paid for what you got. And so, one, you did what you said you were going to do in the proposal, scientifically and technically, and then two, you spent the money accordingly to the budget. So then it really kind of became, what's this third layer <laughs> of extra assurances? And when you read the rules and regs, it talks about reasonable assurances, not absolute assurances. Um, and I think, you know, I think a lot of times administrators and auditors and regulators will try to make it absolute assurances. And that's very hard to attain. Um, it may be impossible to attain. So those are those are some of those things that really become, are we, you know, FDP really kind of put that out there at first and um, got us thinking uh, to be like, wait a minute, what are we really doing? Um, are we chasing something that is unattainable? Lisa and David, what have universities done to complement the work that is being done at the government level? You know, I think OMB does a great job um, 
there's definitely been some uh, FAQs to the UG um, that have been very great in terms of clarifying things. Um, I think on the one of the FAQs for 200.430 um, compensation talked about that you could actually eliminate your current systems, and that was a great uh, clarification. Um, so that's that's been fruitful. I know there's council and government relations, at least in Germany, uh, work with them, Koger, um, and we we work we presented there before as well, and they've been great uh, partners and, and allies. We, we're starting to work more with the audit community, and we presented at a few few conferences where auditors uh, are present, and we'd like to do more of it. And so I think that's one of the things that um, our work has been a little bit different is that we try to get um, partnership with the audit community um, and work with those groups so that we can just have consensus <laughs> on interpretation and, and not really have to bicker in what the interpretation of the rule is or how to achieve the rule or what the test is. I would also add that I think universities over the last you know five to 10 years have done a much better job at you know, looking at how to streamline their own processes, sort of taking that, you know, Lean Six Sigma approach um, and making sure that, you know, as something moves through the process, you know, that they're adding value every time they touch it. There's a reason to it as opposed to this is, you know, the way that we've always done it. Um, You know, as a community, I would say we're still incredibly risk adverse. um, And so, you know, we want to make sure that we take that responsibility of being, you know, stewards of federal taxpayer dollars, you know, very seriously. But I think, you know, we have to uh, make, have some room for risk. So I would say, you know, universities have done a much better job of looking at their own processes, how they are contributing to the problem, and really, you know, investing in systems to manage grants versus people. So making it as streamlined as possible, making sure that you have, you can automate an internal control or a process where available. What is being done to reduce administrative burden in federal grants management to universities? I'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guests today are Lisa Mosley and David No, co-authors with Jeremy Forsberg of the IBM Center Report, Reducing Administrative Burden in Federal Research Grants to Universities. 
Lisa, David, what is being done to reduce burden at the proposal phase in the grants-making life cycle? And what recommendations do you offer in this area? So I would say for proposal preparation, we recommended uh, expanding the use of pre-proposals. So if you look at the funding rate for you know NSF and NIH, and I just we use those because they're the two um, biggest funding agencies. Their funding rates are less than 25%. And if you think about how much time a faculty member spends on putting you know a proposal together for the first time they make a significant time investment for the funding rate, you know, it it doesn't equal. And so making it easier to submit those proposals and then standardizing the format, right? So a pre-proposal, what is having it across the agencies? What are those required documents that are for scientific peer review to need to say, yes, this is a good idea. We should move it to the next phase. And then standardizing the format of those documents across all agencies. And the biographical sketch, the CV is like the perfect example, you know, because NSF and NIH have a different format, DOD, they want certain data elements, but they don't necessarily care about the format. So just having it be one would be (laughs) a significant win to reduce burden. Lisa and David, your report for the IBM Center points out that the award phase in the three-part research grant cycle is probably the briefest part. But there are opportunities to streamline even in this area. What are some of the things that could be streamlined and what recommendations do you offer in streamlining the award phase? So I would say um, it is the most streamlined. You know, NIH uses this process of just in time to request information prior to award. And so that could be um, you know, if you are using human subjects, you know, submitting your IRB approval at that time, including a faculty members, other support documentation at that time. So they recognize that some of those elements of the proposal are not critical at peer review. And so they re- only request them if they are going to make the award would be a big win if use of that process could be expanded across all the federal agencies. And not all federal agencies use the standard research terms and conditions. Most do, but so, for example, Department of Defense does not. And so if OMB could take a uh, stronger leadership role in saying this is what you should do, unless you have a very strong business case for not. Just to add, we, based off of the report that we uh, submitted and published with IBM, uh, we were invited to the National Academy of Public Administration meeting, and those folks, uh, NIH was there, NSF, um, NASA, a bunch of folks really were interested in our report and really wanted to hear these these thoughts. And um, to me, it really kind of, as I started to discuss this with folks after the meeting, I was just reminded of a, a part that influenced me in terms of writing in, in the report was about influence um, beyond uh, the causal inference. And so really kind of thinking about when we design operations and policies and processes, are we thinking about the causes of an effect and looking for the effects of causes? And so having all this information gathered at the proposal stage for proposals that don't get awarded seems to be a lot of administrative burden. And then again, having this information gathered at proposal stage for awards and then gathering more information (laughs) at awards um, or interpretations and setting that forward and then trying to figure out 
even what's the start date? What's the performance period? What's the budget period? What's the scope of work? What are the paperwork items that I need to submit now for certifications and assurances and reps and certs? Um, have I already done that? Do I have to do it again? Um, if I'm issuing a sub-award, um, do I have to go through all those regulations? Procurement, equipment, um, you know, have, have I budgeted correctly? Do I have a budget, correct budget justification? And do I not, now know how to purchase those things? Hiring, travel, <laughs> really kind of managing all those through. And um, those are things that a faculty member needs to do um, to set up their project and their experiments and things of that nature. But then trying to figure out which agency and what are their rules and what are their interpretations and what are their forms and processes. Do I email it? Do I upload it? Um, just simple things like that. Um, do I have to have prior approval or do I already have uh, expanded authority so I can make these uh, changes on my own? And then you can imagine as the researcher is thinking, <laughs> they're sort of like, it feels like people are just making this up as they go along. And, you know, every time it's different. <laughs> Of all the phases of the grant life cycle, the post-award management phase offers the greatest opportunity for reducing administrative burden. I'd like you to elaborate on that, and in particular, what are time or effort reporting requirements, and why are they based on a flawed assumption? So I would say, you know, that assumption is flawed because it makes the assumption that faculty are hourly employees, which... They are not. And the uniform guidance even recognizes that there are activities are inextricably intermingled, right? So I can use the example of if you have a graduate student in the lab and you're teaching them how to do an experiment, that experiment may contribute to your research, but how would you delineate between, okay, this is the teaching part and this is the research part? So they're not hourly employees. And so trying to make them track their hours to report how much time they spent, it's an exercise in insanity because they're not hourly employees and precision is not required. And I will say this was a big win for the uniform guidance and the previous circular, um, the effort reporting was an example of how universities could comply with this after the fact review of salaries being charged on a project, those examples were removed and it said you just have to have a system of internal controls. And there's a lot of audit findings in this area for effort reporting because when you have a faculty member and you're saying, well, how much time did you spend on this project? And they're like, you know, 50% of my time. And then, you know, you add on teaching and other activities, but institutions are forcing them to everything has to equal 100%. So wow. they're like, well, you know, the alternative to effort reporting uh, and FTP did a pilot for this. It was really focused on the charges to that project and are they in proportion to the benefit that was received. So you can, you know, spend a lot of time on a project, but is the salary that you charged a proportionate benefit? And we use this example all the time when we're teaching workshops. Like if you think about your own job, you know, how many hours, if you're salaried, how many hours a week do you work? Sometimes 40, sometimes 60, right? You're not getting paid more, right? Uh The work is still happening. You're still getting done. It's just how much did you charge? And I think, too, the premise is already starting on the attack on a person's integrity to say, I don't think you worked that. Prove to me that you did. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and so that 
initial <laughs> premise is flawed, and I think it creates conflict um, because it's not so much that hey, we think we know that we, our premise is that we know you're going to do the work, and you're probably going to do more of it um, than we're paying you. Um, but we just want to account for the expenses that uh, the charges, the grants not overcharged, and that you're meeting your obligations of what you said you were going to do. So you got what you paid for, you paid for what you got. I think too, in one of these, this is this is an important part where we did some of our research and our methodology and found out in 1967 um, that the Bureau of Budget, Bob, formed an interagency uh, task force on time and effort reporting. It was comprised of NSS, NIH, DOD, and GAO, General Accounting Office. That task force surveyed 357 officials and faculty at 21 universities and 30 government officials. And the outcome of this was a, a publication that Philip Boffey um, had in 1968 saying that the academic community virtually unanimous in the belief that time or effort reporting was impossible to do in a meaningful way, burdensome in that it took valuable professional time and meaningless in that faculty members generally fudged their reports to agree with the previous budget estimates of the time they would spend. And so that was all the way in 1968. Um, and there was actually regulations that came out in 1968 that uh, indicated you would not do uh, time and effort reporting in the sense of activity tracking or timekeeping um, because researchers don't punch in and punch out. And so unfortunately, you know, the history repeats itself and we, you know, in the mid 2000s had all these uh, audits on time and effort reporting in universities really knee-jerked and uh, were really scared and uh, implemented all these processes and policies and electronic systems and people. And then there were uh, jobs that were created that were called effort reporting uh, administrator that never existed <laughs> before that, just to try to get ahead of this and to make sure that the institution was protected and didn't have any audit findings. So that's, that's an example of a whole industry that cropped up. And vendors that came to the table with design and implementations and consulting services and electronic systems that they created and people bought. What are fixed amount grants and how do they offer an opportunity for radical burden reduction? So these types of awards, so most of the research grants uh, that universities receive are cost reimbursable. And so we get the award notice, we spend money on the research salaries, materials and supplies, equipment, whatever is needed, and then we invoice the federal government. Either Usually it's drawing down funds. It's not like sending a paper invoice. And then we have to do you know, some level. It depends on the agency, so it differs across the agency. A detailed financial report or a financial status report. You know, There's administrative requirements, so the prior approval requirements. So fixed amount awards, we recommended that you know, research grants that are $250,000 or less total cost, so that would be direct plus F&A costs, uh, should be fixed amount because it would alleviate some of the financial and administrative requirements for managing those awards. And there's still performance that can be measured because they would still have uh, a progress report or technical reporting that would happen, so they can still manage the performance. What are some of the key recommendations to reduce burden at the post-award management phase? So one is um, just having that consistent implementation across agencies and interpretation of the uniform guidance. So I think David sort of mentioned this earlier, you know, with the audit community, there can be a difference between, you know, the agency policy says this, 
the institution will interpret and apply as this, and then the audit community can have a completely separate opinion and issue, you know, findings and question costs. And that whole process, you know, is also incredibly uh, burdensome for both the federal government and for the institution. So I think, you know, having that consistent implementation, interpretation, and guidance from the federal agencies of this is exactly what it means, and then really expanding the use of fixed amount grants when possible. In addition to targeted burden reduction opportunities, at each phase of the research grant cycle, there are some overarching opportunities to improve the operation of the federal grants process in general. Would you elaborate on those opportunities? Is there any movement in seizing these opportunities? So I would say, you know, really just a more active leadership roles by OMB, I think would be helpful. Uh, We recognize, and as I mentioned earlier, like some of the agencies need autonomy and they have different missions. And it's not that we expect them to be a one size fits all. But I think for their business process, you know, is there a business case that they have that requires them to be different, to do something differently? And I think if they don't have a business case, then it would be great if OMB would say that's not a valid reason, you know, get with the program sort of thing. I think, you know, a more consistent and predictable role from the audit community. I think, again, the interpretation issue, and we absolutely understand why it's so important for them to maintain their independence. And we think that, you know, having an audit only makes us better, but it would be great if there was just more consistency and interpretation from the audit community on some of these things. And even some of their, you know, getting their opinion ahead of time before major changes, not from the, uh, can we do this? not from a mother may I perspective, but like where are the risks that you see um, and helping them also understand that there is some risk, right? Not to approach everything from a zero tolerance. And then I think just, you know, creating a broader framework for burden reduction for all of the stakeholders, right? So the, the university community, the grant recipients, you know, the federal agencies and the audit community. Yeah, and I think that, the, the part that, you know, for us is really in uniform guidance and there's always this theme of a system of internal controls. And in the prior regulations, there was not that much of a reference um, on internal controls. And really a lot of universities have really started to ask, what does that mean? What does a strong system of internal controls entail? And I think one of the things that I'm proud of um, working with Jeremy and Lisa has been that we've worked with the audit community and we've worked with uh, people that have uh, participated in single audit and people that are former fraud investigators like Paul Coleman and um, folks that will help us out, you know, in the audit perspective, uh, like Lisa Franciosa and really kind of talking to those folks and getting this system of internal controls in place that we, that we have now that we're able to then say, we're able to answer things before they become problems where it's almost doing a self audit on ourselves so that we can identify issues and fix them. Uh, in a timely and relevant manner um, and not waiting till the very end of the award to do that. Um, and so I think that that type of proactive uh, administration is good because ultimately we don't want to have problems uh, at the end of the award and we don't want to have uh, instances where our institution uh, looks bad and we're not able to protect it as well. But we also want to facilitate uh, the research. Um, and so I think that that's the part that really is interesting is, you know, instead of um, sitting in a mode of, 
we don't want to get in trouble. Can we focus on, can we facilitate the work? Uh, and along the way, comply. Um, so, you know, comply to whatever the rules are that we need to comply to. Um, so if a charge is unallowable, then we take it off and we, we're timely and we're relevant with taking that charge off. And we, if an auditor asks, we are then able to point to that, that event in that moment to say, you're right, we, we found that too. Um, and this is what we did to fix it. And so I think that that type of collaboration with, with auditors and the audit community would be really appreciated because I think when you have the social agenda that impacts the political agenda, that impacts the research agenda, consensus is key. And to me, it's really kind of searching for what is consensus. And, you know, Lisa mentioned fraud. It becomes, you know, that's an intent to misrepresent for financial gain. And so that's, to me, a different thing than unsigned paperwork. Lisa and David, are there any other recommendations you have to help reduce the administrative burden associated with grants management? And what does the future hold in this area? So I would say for other recommendations, I think for institutions, I mean, in federal agencies, too, of course, you know, the guiding principle, Jeremy always says, you know, compliance is a yes or no question. You either are compliant or you're not. And taking that minimalist approach. So a lot of times we've seen, you know, where institutions will add extra compliance requirements that aren't necessarily needed because it makes them feel like they're safer. Um, but really, I mean, you're adding burden that's not necessary and you could actually be increasing your audit risk and exposure. And then just remembering, you know, research grants, you know, are unique and uniform guidance applies to all federal grants, but, you know, research is unique. And I think that we need to have a little bit more flexibility and nimbleness and really doing what we are intended to do, which is to benefit the public good. Still be accountable. Absolutely rules are required and needed and we willingly follow them. But I think, you know, recognizing that there is some risk that we're all taking by doing this. Uh, and what does the future hold? Uh, I would say a lot of exciting work for improvement. And I think I uh, so definitely agree with everything that Lisa uh, mentioned. And Jeremy and I and Lisa work together a lot on this, and we talk about this openly. But I think, um, you know, one thing that for me that I notice and hopefully the future does not hold is death by a thousand paper cuts. Um, and there's definitely is perception uh, that any restriction improves integrity, um, and I'm not quite sure. So COI is an example of that. We do a lot of steps now, um, and I don't know that there's ever been an assessment or a, a, a compiling of stats to say, did we prevent um, any conflicts of interest? Um, since we're doing all these steps, should we catch more? <laughs> or are there just less of them because um, of all the steps that we have? Um, and I think also in, in that regard with effort reporting, there's a lot of things where people will say that limits waste um, or increases accountability. And so I think to me, sometimes it really becomes, are we really managing the 1% that acted inappropriately? And then the 99% of us have to you know, do these extra things and burden some things uh, that don't impact us and that we would never, uh, the probability and the, the impact would not be high uh, for us, which then becomes a series of checkboxes, as Jeremy mentions. And, and paperwork is a substitute for good judgment, objectivity, and the ethics of an individual or the organization. Um, and that these substitutions come at a significant cost and burden to the entire enterprise. And really does the sponsor try to assess the cost and burden of, of the regulations it imposes. Um, it lingers for years. 
Um, so it's easier to add requirements for the quote-unquote public good and much harder to review and remove out of fear or quote-unquote fault. And these are, these are quotes from Jeremy as well because I want to make sure that his, his thoughts are uh, added on this call because um, he's a big part of our trio. Um, but then also I would also say that the outcomes of research are very rarely questioned. And auditors, when we're talking to them, uh, they don't necessarily question the technical or scientific aspects at all. So it's always been that the report is, the technical report is submitted and it's accepted and the work got done. But then the oversight costs and, and burdens are focused on the paperwork instead of the efficiency and effectiveness of achieving the performance outcome. And so, you know, to me, there's a lot of room to grow, grow um, in terms of procurement, salary cost transfers, uh, sub-recipient monitoring, equipment purchases. There's a lot of burdens that should be alleviated. And I hope that, you know, with our report and working with, you know, alternative separate reporting, that opens the door for an opportunity and an expectation to alleviate burden in all research administration, uh, not just that one topic. Lisa and David, I'd like to thank you once again for uh, the work you've done uh, for the IBM Center and also for joining me today on the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors. Uh, and I want to make sure folks know you can download uh, this uh, report and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with author series with Lisa Mosley and David No, co-authors with Jeremy Forsberg of the IBM Center Report, Reducing Administrative Burden in Federal Research Grants to Universities. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always, at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. What does it take to scale evidence-based social programs successfully? What combination of federal, state, and local public policy changes are needed to successfully scale evidence-based social programs? And what management strategies and resources are needed? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Patrick Lester, author of the IBM Center Report, Scaling Evidence-Based Programs in Child Welfare, on a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Conversations with Author Series. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour.